Well, this morning I have an interesting uh, sermon for you, not because of the topic, but just because it's kind of a different experience for me to be uh, on the spot uh, interviewing during a sermon. That's not usually the context of a sermon. Uh, and it's also not usually the context of a sermon where I'm, I'm looking at the audience and thinking, do I really want to be here with them <laughs> for the next several years? But we'll try to put that aside and actually get to a Bible study. Um, the, uh, the place I want to take you is in 1 Peter. And uh, you can open there if you want, but I want to tell you a little bit about myself before we do any Bible study, if you don't mind. I grew up... And, and, and after we do a little bit of Bible study from First Peter, I want to tell you kind of my philosophy and how I see the church, how I see my role as a pastor in the church. Um, figure that would be something you'd like to know. So I grew up in an Adventist home. My mom and my dad both were really active in the church. They were Pathfinder leaders. I hear that this church has a new Pathfinder group for the last couple of years, and it's, uh, I mean, it, it's got a reputation. I've been hearing about it down in Walla Walla, so... That's a good, a good reputation, by the way. <laughs> my mom and dad are Pathfinder leaders, and they, um, they were heavily involved in everything. My dad was a deacon. My mom was always at the church. We were the kind of family that was at everything the church did, a music program, a Wednesday night Bible study, everything that happened, we were there. And, and it was one of these churches that has about 35 people attending, when my wife and I came back, uh, our second year of marriage, I took her on our anniversary to Kentucky just to show her around where I'd grown up. And our little church that had about 35 people there when I was attending now made 11 when we were there, including us. Uh, and, and they asked me to speak, I think, if I remember right. <laughs> so it, it's kind of a small country church that, that I grew up in. And when I was uh, 10 or 11, the pastor of my church preached a sermon on the parable of the talents. And at the end of the sermon, he called five of us kids forward. I think that's all the kids that were in the room at the time. And uh, to one, he gave a $10 bill. And then to another, he gave a $5 bill. And to two more, he gave $2 bills. And I think he was running out of money. He gave me $1 bill. And, and it made me mad. Because it's like he's saying, I'm the unprofitable servant. And that didn't, that didn't sit well with me. So I, I went home, and uh, my grandpa had a relationship with a Safeway or something similar. I think it might have been a Piggly Wiggly at the time, um, because that's an actual grocery store in Kentucky. But anyway, um, we went to the Piggly Wiggly or Gro Kroger or whatever it was, and, and uh, he was able to get these, these uh, out-of-date groceries, box good and cans good, canned goods and things like that. And, and uh, they would sell it to him for really, really little. And he would, I don't know, I think he's, he resold it for not much more to, uh, to other people. But I was able to get a box of saltine crackers. Not a, not a box, but a case of 16 boxes. And, uh, and, and when I, I get this box for a dollar, this case of saltines, I, I put it on a, on a, uh, a three-wheel bike my mom had. And I rode it all around my town, and I'd ask people and knock on their doors, and I'd ask them, would you like to buy a box of saltine crackers for 50 cents or something like that? So I, I turned a dollar into $8 in a couple days, and then I went back to Kroger, and I got some more out-of-date stuff, because when you get a high-margin product, right, you got to go back. And, and so by the end of that week, the, the girl that got $10 brought back 20 and the guy that got $5, he brought back 
I, six or seven or ten, something like that. I forget what the $2 people brought back, but I brought back a $20 bill. And I was pretty proud of myself. Um, probably neither of those emotions were appropriate, but I was 10, right? So <laughs> I'm, I'm going to excuse myself for that. But I think the, the story illustrates a couple things about myself that are still true. One of them is that I'm an entrepreneur. I like to, I like to start things, and I see um, a vision of where I'd like to be, and I know where I'm at, and, and I can figure out how to get to where I want to be. And I think that's a, an important skill in a leader, but it's, it's also something that I have to be careful about because unless it's surrendered to God, I can be self-sufficient, and that's, that's not a healthy thing. And so I consistently surrender myself to God and say, God, my, these are my plans. You take them. You change them. Do what you want with them. But then there's, uh, there's also the other aspect. Um, I, I tend to be a people pleaser, and that's not a good thing either. I wanted to make sure that pastor didn't think that, that, it didn't think badly of me. I didn't want to be the unprofitable guy. And you know, it can be a, a bad thing to be a people pleaser, but I, I hear the job of a pastor is to please the people. Isn't that right? No? But I hear that you please some people when you come, some people while you're there, and, and the rest of them when you leave. So, so technically, yeah, it, it would work out. When I was 15, my pastor decided to uh, invite me to be, uh, uh, I guess, a partner with him doing pastoral visitation. And he took me out and we did all kinds of great things, like um, we did marriage counseling. When I come right here, it does not sound very good. I'm going to stay away from that spot. Um, when when uh, we did marriage counseling, we did Bible studies, we did uh, just a, a wide variety of visitation type things. You know, hanging out with people just because, going to visit people who are sick, taking communion to people, all of those things. And, and I found as a 15-year-old that this wasn't really complicated stuff. It didn't seem hard work. Like, anybody could be doing this in our church, and nobody was. I knew because I asked my pastor, why isn't elder so-and-so doing this? And he said, well, he doesn't have the time. I knew elder so-and-so, and all he did was watch TV and play with his wood shop. And I like wood, so I get that, but um, he had time. I knew he had time. And then there's the elder, other elder, and he had time too, but, uh, but the pastor just said, no, they, they, they just don't have the time. And I thought, what, what would happen if everybody was engaged in this? And, and uh, I did... I think three evangelistic series with the pastor, and by saying that, I just mean that I came and I sat there and I was assisting in some way, mostly taking notes. I learned a lot. Um, it was a good experience. And through those, about a year or so of doing that with my pastor, maybe two years, I found out a couple things that have stuck with me. One is that I realized if more members were doing the kind of work, the simple work that we were doing in visitation, the church would be growing. And the second thing I realized is that I really valued mentorship. When, when a spiritual leader, somebody who's in a leadership role, takes on a younger person and says, let me, let me draw you in and grow you, and they call you, that, that is really an exciting thing. And I think it's an, an important aspect of every leader's job uh, in, in a spiritual role. That year, I was reading through the book of Isaiah, and I got to Isaiah chapter 6, and in the, with the context of this uh, mentorship that my pastor had been giving me, I read the call of Isaiah, and it was like God was saying to me, who will go? Who shall I send? And I was like, pick me. And, and it was clear in my mind that God was calling me not to be a prophet, but to help engage 
church members in active witness, in incarnational ministry. One last point that I'd like to tell you about myself is uh, nearly 14 years ago, in September it'll be 14 years, and seven months after I had gotten a job as the Literature Ministries Director at the Southern California Conference, my wife, Joelle, made me a very happy man by saying, I do. And then seven years later, uh, we were joined by our daughter, Adeline, and just five years ago, Maxwell came along while we were living in an RV, traveling around the North Pacific Union with the uh, North Pacific, well, traveling around Idaho, Washington, and Oregon, I guess, uh, working for the North Pacific Union. Now, some people think that when, when they get a pastor, that they get two workers for the price of one. And I'd just like to tell you ahead of time, since this is an interview context, that, that you're interviewing me uh, for the job of pastor. My wife already has a full-time job. She, she's doing the most important ministry that the world has ever known. She's a mother. And she's also an editor and a writer on the side. I promised a Bible study, so let's turn to 1 Peter. And 1 Peter is a, it's a letter. And, and so I want to focus on chapter 2, the first few verses there. But in order to get to chapter 2, we have to understand a little bit about what's happening at the beginning of the, the, the letter. Because you wouldn't take an envelope out, um, take a letter out of an envelope, and then pull out the third page and start from there, right? You'd start at the very beginning. So we have to understand a little bit of context in 1 Peter in order to get the rest and, and I think that it's, it's significant how Peter begins this letter. He starts with this beautiful, in, in verses 3 and following, he starts by saying things like, um, praises to our Lord Jesus Christ who's caused us to be born again. Like there's this ex- exciting energy that he has. He's given us a living hope through Jesus' resurrection. And because of Jesus, we have an inheritance, an inheritance that's imperishable, that won't ever fade, that's undefiled. These are all things that Peter is saying, and he's, he's building up to something, but he's saying God is doing this for you. This is an amazing thing. Praise to God for this. And then in verse 5, it gets better because Peter is saying in verse 5 that we're being guarded by God's power through faith for salvation. Not only does God cause us to be born again, but God protects and maintains our salvation through faith all the way to the second coming of Christ. Peter's so full of hope. He's so full of confidence that we can trust what God's grace is doing. Our future is secure. And then uh, Peter, he, he says this, this idea, it's like he's so confident that God's grace precedes and supplies our salvation, it protects our salvation, and it provides for our future glorification. Like God's grace is everywhere. And you might hear me say this about, I don't know, a couple dozen times in the sermon, maybe more. Joel says it's about every other sentence you say grace. Um, so... Uh, I think it's, it's, it's worthwhile to, to note Peter's beginning of this, of this book because he's so into what God is doing for us. But then in verse 13, he, he has a transition word, and the transition word is therefore. Therefore, something's going to happen. In my Bible, it says this section from 13 to 25 has a heading called to be holy, which is an excellent summary of the passage. Peter is saying, because of all that Christ has done and is doing in and for you, therefore, you also be holy. In other words, holiness is living in the light of the grace that God has given us. 
my wife who has been studying First Peter, and by the way, um, she's also graduating tomorrow with me with a master's of pastoral ministry. Um, when I was given the chance to take the course, my wife was like, you're already working 80-hour weeks. How am I going to have any time with you? And she kind of complained in front of the lady that's in charge of the program, and the lady's like, well, why don't you take it too? She thought about it for a second. Doesn't cost anything. Get to do something with my husband. And she was like, yeah, okay. <laughs> and she's a better theologian than I am, just so you know. So she's studying First Peter, and, and she made this statement. Um, God is inviting us. I think I might have put it up here. Yeah, God is inviting us to lean into the grace that he has promised to give us. Uh, this leaning into grace is kind of like the rock climber. Anybody rock climb in the room? Yeah, a few of you. Okay. Um, you got to trust your rope, don't you? You got to trust your rope. And, and the rock climber, trusting their rope, they're going to plant their feet on the rock and lean back without worrying at all. Why would you worry? You know the rope's going to hold you. And that's kind of like what God is asking us to do with grace, leaning into grace, because we know for certainty that he who will continue to give us grace in the future. And that gives us confidence. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 1.13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And he continues talking about holiness and obedience for a few verses. And then in verse 22, he says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Peter's like, because we know what God has done, therefore love one another with brotherly love. There's a, a correlation here. Leaning into grace leads to brotherly love. I mean, if God has done so much for me, and he's done so much for you, if he loves me so much, if he loves you so much, then why wouldn't we love each other? Doesn't that kind of make sense? That we would have a affection for each other, just like God has had affection for us? And then there's a, a beautiful contrast that Peter makes in 1 Peter um, 1, 24 and 25. He says, all flesh is like grass, all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. There's this contrast, and we're going to have to come back to it later. So keep in mind that the context of 1 Peter 2 comes from this passage. First of all, that God's grace has been poured out to us. Secondly, that there's a leaning into grace that we have to do. That, that includes brotherly love. And third, that we're grass. We, we go away like, like a, an instant. Here today, gone tomorrow. Because Peter's about to do something in, in chapter 2 that makes a, a significant contrast with chapter 1. In chapter 2, Verse 1, Peter says, laying aside, he, he starts with another therefore, right? Because of this, therefore. So therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking. Leaning into grace includes putting away these things. And notice how they're all preventing loving relationship. You can't be in a loving relationship with somebody who you can't trust, right, who speaks lies or gossips about you. You can't be in a loving relationship with somebody who's envious of you all the time. There's, there's barriers that these things create in relationship. How can, and, and God is inviting us to allow his grace to be poured out through us in love to other people. And how could we be the conduits of God's grace if we were holding some kind of malice towards somebody? If we were um, thinking badly of somebody, 
speaking evil of them, or living a life that's contrary to what we say that we should be living. And then Peter invites us, part of leaning into grace, he says, is growing in salvation. I apologize. My, my computer just decided that it didn't want to show me my sermon. This has not happened before. Part of leaning into grace is about growing in God and growing in, in, in our salvation. And in second, uh, 1 Peter 2, verse, uh, verse 2, it says, As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. I can't see what's on the screen, so I'm just going to ignore that for a bit because I, I, don't, I don't know what you're going to see. So um, I've got them up there, but we're just going to have to look in our Bibles. Um, so just make sure you have your Bible out, and we'll, we'll be going through a few of these verses. Notice that, uh, that, that the Bible is not vegan. The basic nutrient here for salvational growth is milk. Just just interesting point there. Um, don't worry, it's the milk of the word. Um, so if you are vegan, you don't have to stress. Uh, but, but this is essential stuff, and, and it's, it's something that Peter is suggesting that comes from an experience. He says, you've tasted and you've seen that that milk of the Lord is good. What is that milk? What is that beautiful stuff? Well, it's, it's the gospel. It's the word of the Lord that remains forever that we found in, in 1 Peter 1, verse 25. The milk of the word is God's grace in your life. Have you tasted the milk? Have you tasted that God is good? If you haven't yet then you've got something good to look forward to because God is good. Then in verse, um, verse 5, no, I'm sorry, verse 4, coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. Notice a couple things about this verse. First of all, Peter is, he's assuming, it's just a natural assumption that if you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, if you're growing in your walk with God, if you're growing in salvation and in this brotherly love experience, then you're going to be coming to Christ. I mean, why wouldn't you want to come to the one who's so precious? Coming to him, he says. But then he says something about Jesus. He says that he's um, a living stone. I think he's, he's saying this because he's about to quote Isaiah 28 in verse 6. And Isaiah 28 says that Jesus is the, the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone, the head of the church. But he says that he's a living stone, I think, because in verse 5, he makes this transition and he says something similar about us. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Living stone. Jesus is a living stone, and then he says we're living stones. Now, the, the living stones here in chapter, in verse 5, there, there's some correlation with what Jesus is. Jesus is a living stone. He's making us into living stones. Is Jesus making you into a, a new being, a new person? And the contrast that he's making is between this verse and chapter 1, verse 24, where he said that we're like grass. How, how long does grass last? I mean, it depends on how hot the summer is, but maybe a few weeks, right? Um, you know, maybe a, maybe a year long. But rocks, there are stone buildings that are still up today that are hundreds of years old. 
They last a long time. And that's kind of what Peter is suggesting. Before Christ, we're, we're here today, gone tomorrow. But after Christ, we have an inheritance that's imperishable, that will last forever. We're like living stones that will last forever, enduring through all eternity because of Christ. And then he, he, he says that we're being built up. Who's doing the building in this context? God is building up this church. Jesus, the chief cornerstone laid there by God, the rest of the stones around him being built up and squared to Jesus, being built up by God himself. God has a, a role for each one of us to play, doesn't he? A place in his church. This church is a church made of stone. I know you look at the side and you'll say, no, it's actually made of wood. Um, but that's not, that's not the church. This is just a building, a facility that we use for the work that God has called us to do and for the blessing of, of uh, worshiping together. This isn't a church. You are the church. God has called each one of us to fit into this, what does Peter call it? A spiritual house. Isn't that a nice idea? What, what kind of people live in a house? What kind of group of people live in a house? Family. There's a lot that we could learn about uh, the church from this idea of living stones in a spiritual house. One thing that we can learn is that, well, when you think of, of a stone wall, how many of the individual stones generally stand out when you look at a big wall of stone? I mean, are you paying attention to the individuals? No, you're looking at the big picture. You're looking at the mosaic of all of the stones. You're looking at, at everything put together, the architecture. You're really admiring the architect, aren't you? That's why when the Bible says that people will see your good works, what will they do as a result? They'll glorify God. They'll glorify the architect, not the individual stone. There's no stone that's more important than another in the, the Bible's perspective on church. No individual member that's more significant. The pastor standing in the pulpit isn't more special, more important, more valuable than the child sitting in the seat. The elder is no more significant than the greeter. Um, the, there, there's no man or woman that's more important than the other. Gender isn't a, an issue. Race and, and country of origin has nothing to do with it. Um, in, in the Bible's perspective, when we come into church, we come as, in as equally special because well, because of Christ. Christ is the chief cornerstone, the head of the church, and all of us are fitted together in, well, in a way that will glorify God, in a way that will accomplish his work. But then there's a so that in this verse. Verse 5 has a so that, and it's uh, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, and I know that the New King James says two, but just insert so that because that's the same, it means the same thing. So that you can offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now it says that there's a holy priesthood. And the holy priesthood is an interesting idea to me. When I think of living stones, I think of we're not really doing anything. We're just sitting there. But then he clarifies that it's a priesthood and priesthoods do, priests do something. Back in the Israelites' time, the priest had a, a special role, not just sacrificing and being in the temple, but they would also go to people's homes during the festivals. Uh, so let's say that you were holding 
um, the, the festival in your home, you had this, the, um, the lamb or whatever it was that you're supposed to make, you'd invite a priest to come and join your family. And the priest or the Levite would, would share about why we're doing this, uh, this particular ceremony, what the significance of this ceremony is. And, and then they would give some spiritual counsel to that family. It was an opportunity for spiritual leadership. And I believe that God has called each of us to a spiritual leadership role in our communities. He's called us all to be priests, a nation of priests, not, not a pastor that does everything, but a community that leads the rest of, uh, of our neighborhoods um, to, in spiritual things. Um, I don't have the quote on the screen, and my computer is still refusing to, to think for me. Um, but there's a quote that, that Ellen White makes. It's from The Desire of Ages, and she says that every, every person who comes to Christ is a missionary. And, and the summary of the idea is that when, when we receive the fountain of life from God, that the, the word of life, the water of life, whatever you want to call it, that it becomes a spring of living water coming out of us and blessing others. When God pours his grace into us, it can't stay there because, how does the Bible say it? It's, it's pressed down and still overflowing when God pours his grace into our lives, it's more than we can bear, more than we can handle. We have to share it. And, uh, and that's what verses 9 and 10 say. You're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim. This is the, the sacrifices of praise that he's talking about in verse 5. You mo- that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. How can you not tell people, I was once in darkness, but now I'm in light. I was once abandoned, but now I'm adopted. I was once hopeless, but now I'm full of hope. How can you not say those things? When Christ is in your heart, when grace is poured into you, then the result is that you lead others. Ellen White says that all who follow Christ will lead others. And then she makes this profound and, and, and it's a kind of disturbing statement. Disturbing because she's talking to a Laodicean church in the 1890s. And she says, wherever a church is established, all the members should engage actively in missionary labor. They should visit every family in their community and they should understand their spiritual condition. She didn't say you should visit every family and give a Bible study. She didn't say you should visit every family and give out literature. I, I've been a literature evangelist for 20 years, so it's, it, it cringe, I cringe a little bit saying that. But that's not what she said. She said, visit every family and understand their spiritual condition. What, is, what do you need to understand a spiritual condition? You need a friendship. You need relationship. You need connection. You need their trust so that they're willing to take you into their home and they're willing to come into your home. You need to do life together. I think that's uh, a good, this is a good summary of my philosophy of church uh, and my understanding of my role. I'm a, I'm a pastor. My job in the church is unique. God's, God's gifted me with certain skills that enable me to be in that kind of a role. But, uh, but I can't be everything. I can't be everybody's best friend. One stone only really is good at connecting with the stones closest to it, the ones in proximity, right? Can't be everybody's best friend. I can't handle every um, theological uh, hobby horse that comes to me. I, I'm just not going to be able to deal with all of that. 
my role is the role of an, of an enabler, of a resource person, of an organizer. I can help create functional systems that will help develop um, loving community. But I can't, can't do everything. We're all part of the picture, part of the, the spiritual house that God is building. Each one of us has a special role that he's putting us into, some place that will fit just right. And it's only when we're all together that this, the building can have integrity. Uh, if you're not there, then there's a hole. If five or six of you aren't there, then there's a wall collapsing, right? That, that's how a building works. And God builds us into it just where he wants us to be. And we all rely on each other. So that's kind of my philosophy. Uh, but I, I need to point out one, one thing. And uh, in order to do that, I have to tell you a joke. You ready for a joke? Okay, um, what do you get when you put three adults in the back of a small sedan? Nobody? No, no, okay. Close friends. <laughs> and and the, the church is kind of like a small sedan. That's what it's intended to be. It's a, it's a place where relationships are so close that you live life together so closely that you kind of are in either a place of discomfort or you settle into the comfort of close relationship. That's what God is inviting us to do. Jesus, in Matthew 28, he says that, uh, he gives us a little bit of a different context of this priesthood thing. He says, go and make disciples. Making disciples is kind of the role of the priest. Um, that's the same spot that Jesus is plugging in. The mission of the church is making disciples. And, and discipleship is a, an inherently relational thing. You don't make disciples by sitting uh, nearby somebody in church for 20 years. It just doesn't work. I don't know if you can uh, look at the slide. There's, there's one, there's a picture. It says, Jesus didn't make disciples this way. Why should we? I'd, I'd love you to see this picture. We'll see if we can get there. Well, we do. Jesus had a group of three men that he was really close to. Oh, there it is. Jesus did life with his disciples, didn't he? He didn't just put them in front of a, a, a speaker, or put them in, a, in, a, you know, in a, a desk and say, all right, here, I'm going to teach you how to be a disciple. That's not how Jesus did it. He did life with them. He ministered with them. He healed people with them. He walked around um, and, and, and went places with them. He, he hung out with them. He ate with them. Jesus did life with him, and that's how he made disciples. And, and the, the same is true, I think, in our experience of making disciples. We don't make disciples by holding an evangelistic series, though an evangelistic series is a fantastic way to call people to Jesus. It is not how we make disciples. Making disciples happens in close relationship, and that happens over time in life. And, and Jesus, he did it. He had these, these three really close disciples Peter, James, and John. These were so close that these are the guys, when Jesus was in the, mo the biggest crisis that he'd ever been in, he's there in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, please come and pray with me. Wouldn't you like to have two or three people that you can say, please come and pray with me. I'm in a crisis situation. Isn't that a beautiful idea? Jesus had those. And uh, he also, these are close enough uh, people to him that when he was on the cross, it was as though he made them the executors of his, of his will. Because he gave one his his, his mom, and to another, he gave the responsibility of his church. That These were significant people in Jesus' experience. And I believe that in, 
in the Christian community. We need to do life together. We need to have people that are so close to us that they can slap us on the back of the head and say, no, that is not what the Bible says. And we say, oh, yeah, you're right. Okay. We need, to be, we need to have the checks and balances of close relationship. God designed us to be in relationship. We, we can't be a disciple of Jesus and be, be there at home studying the Bible for hours. That's not a disciple. A disciple is somebody who's in, involved in community relationship. Jesus also had a group of a dozen or so men. I don't know, there's 12 men and then there's 70 and it kind of gets complicated. He had lots of people that followed him around. But these 12 that were really close and he would sit around with them and he'd talk specific things with them. And, and it's these 12 that he developed, he developed a mission with. I don't know if you realize it, but it's these 12 men and, and the, res, uh, the result of their ministry uh, that caused the Christian church to grow and spread to all the world in just a matter of 40 years or so. Twelve people can do a lot. I was just at the Clark Fork Church, and there was about 15 of us there. There is nothing that would hinder that church from making a huge impact on the whole world stage through the power of God's Holy Spirit. A small group can do a lot. And, and I think that when I look at the church, I see these close relationships, and, and I can't have close relationships with everybody, but I can have close relationships with maybe a dozen of you. And, and you can have close relationships with a dozen or so, right? And if we're in close relationship in these smaller groups, that's kind of the engine that drives the mission of the church. It's not some institutional thing that we do. All right, the church is doing a big, a big push from this area. Can we get volunteers? That's not how the mission of the church has moved forward. The mission of the church has moved forward because um, a dozen or so of you are meeting together regularly, loving Jesus together, spending time worshiping together, doing life together, and, and you're praying and saying, God, what would you like us to do? And then God puts a burden on your heart, and because of that burden, you step out in faith, and you do something for God. And we, when we have a few of those groups in the church doing something for God, the church is doing something for God. Maybe that's just my perspective. I think it comes from the Bible. It seems like it's in the Bible, um, but that, that's a passion that I have and a perspective that I have on, on ministry. And one of the jobs of a, well, any Christian that comes to God's Word, one of your jobs is to look at it and ask a couple questions. Because you can't just get the Bible and, and try to find information. You need life transformation. And to get that, you need to understand First, what is, God ask, what, what is God teaching me about myself or about himself? How do I get to know myself better? Or how do I get to know him better from what I just read? And the second question you need to ask is, what is God inviting me into? What's he asking of me? And that's part of my job as a preacher when I'm in that role is to get you to the what's God inviting me uh, into kind of question. And the, the big idea here in First Peter is because God has poured his grace out so much in my life, therefore, I'm invited into loving relationship with other people around me, and I'm, in, I'm invited to a passionate mission for God. What is God calling you to do? How can you step in and lean in to grace that God has poured into your life?